Hi, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of the second season of You Shine the Loops podcast. I'm your host, Nadia Osman, and I'm so excited to be back and just very excited for what this year will have to offer. So obviously, welcome back to returning listeners. And for new listeners, I'm so glad you decided to tune in. If you're new and you're not aware, You Shine the Loop is a news organization whose mission is to bring civic engagement to the Chicago community and beyond. The podcast in particular focuses on explaining to you all how government works, the ins and outs of our complicated democratic system, and how it impacts your everyday lives. So for our first episode, we would like to begin this episode by highlighting the importance of engaging with international media as a part of a holistic civics education. How do we, as Americans, view other areas of the world, especially areas that are not technically quote-unquote Western? How does our engagement with foreign media change what's happening on the ground? Does it change anything? And further, what does a free press look like in a country that is under terrorist rule? These are the questions we must ask ourselves, especially in understanding what is going on in Afghanistan today. Here to help us reflect on these questions is Lotfullo Najavizada, an award-winning Afghan journalist. He's the director of Tolo News, Afghanistan's largest and premier TV channel. Mr. Najavizada himself has engaged key global leaders in conversation, including, but not limited to, the former British Prime Minister David Cameron and former Afghan President Ashraf Ghani. He also holds esteemed international recognition and boasts several prestigious awards. Mr. Najavizada's work is closely aligned with Yushai in the Loop's mission to use journalism to build a more peaceful, democratic world. So, in light of the recent American withdrawal, we are interested to hear Mr. Najavizada's thoughts on political journalism and civic engagement in the U.S. and Afghanistan. I am very excited you're here, and without further ado, here's our conversation. Okay, so Fatula, thank you so much for being here and talking with me today. Um, I kind of just wanted to start out with a bang and get out. The big question over with, who do you feel is responsible for the fall of Afghanistan? Does blame rest with the U.S.? Does it rest with President Ghani? Um, or even the military, as Biden suggested, because he did say, you know, like, this was on the fault of the Afghans for not having the political like will and the motivation to stand up for themselves. Um, or is it a combination of everything? I think it's, it's a collective failure uh, on the parts of the U.S. for some of the um, bad decisions uh, from the very beginning of uh, the campaign in 2001 and most importantly some of the decisions in the past couple of years uh, with regards to the peace process and some of the recent decisions about unconditional withdrawal. On the Afghan side, I think, um, you know, the poor leadership um, uh, by Ghani and uh, even the former president, um, terrible leadership of the security forces over the years. We had, you know, great uh, army and police, army in particular, um, until a few years ago, uh, which somehow uh, were not trained well um, by the le- recent leadership of the security forces uh, on all fronts. And also, let's not forget the role of the region. 
So region also played uh, a role in um, particularly countries like Pakistan, Iran, also Russia and China probably to an extent. Um, either helping the Taliban directly or elevating their um, role. So I would say Afghanistan was this collective uh, failure of all uh, parties involved. But unfortunate that the people of Afghanistan will pay the price mm-hmm. for for all of this. Right, of course. So because you're a journalist, um, we kind of want to ask you if you could walk us through the media scene and the free press scene during the U.S. occupation. What did it really look like? Um, what were maybe the costs and benefits of the U.S. occupation on the media? I think media in Afghanistan was such a success story of the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. We were the freest, you know, we had the freest press in the entire region compared with all of our immediate and far neighbors. Mm. Uh, look at the uh, Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index. We are much, much better and higher than most of these countries who are in the neighborhood. Some have uh, you know, dicta- dictatorships like Central Asia. Some uh, others, I think, um, like you know, inte- just terrible intelligence agencies like ISI mm-hmm. in Pakistan, uh, who is not very media friendly. Right. And countries like Iran, for instance, I think the regime there, the government there, is not very uh, media friendly. Uh, there is very difficult to access to have access to information. Of course, China uh, is not a very good example when it comes to press freedom. So Afghanistan was this hope, was this um, shining light in the middle of you know darkness in the entire region. But it, we, we, this was not anyone's gift to us. Afghanistan was uh, uh, the deadliest or is the deadliest country for journalists in the world. Um, uh, you know, we have lost um, over 100 journalists in the past 20 years in the country. Mm. Uh, that is a great, great number um, compared to, um, uh, uh, you know, what we see elsewhere in the world. <coughs> Excuse me. In the, um, um, in, the, in the region in particular. So, um, so media, I think, so we have, we had like, hundreds of newspapers, TV channels, radio stations. Um, uh, we had great entertainment programs, soap operas from, you know, from India to um, Turkey to Colombia to Hollywood. Mm. Um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, music programs uh, like the Afghanistan's version of The Voice. The oh, Afghanistan wow. <laughs> version of the, uh, you know, American Idol. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, you know comedy shows satire so so the scene was pretty vibrant until the Taliban came um, you know two months ago yeah. so um, so things have changed quite significantly but over the past 20 years I think the country is, uh, was liberated in a sense that people were able to exp- speak their mind yeah and that was um, that was something that we had not experienced um, in the past fifty years. Mm-hmm. 
And more specifically, how would you say Ashraf Ghani's administration affected the way that you could report and what kind of access did he give you or restrictions? <coughs> Sorry. Ashraf Ghani was not a media-friendly person. He, uh, he didn't do many interviews. He was proud not to watch television. He didn't engage with the media very often. But the government as a whole, I think, was um, the media, I would say, to put, to, put, to, to put it differently. The media in the country was very strong. Okay. So they had a lot of access uh, to the government. You know, people wanted to be nice to the Afghan media. So there were laws in place, there were unions, there were... Um, you know, other initiatives enabling journalists to have access to information as much as you can, of course, hmm. given the circumstances of the country. Right. But Ghani was not this champion of, you know, press freedom or anything. Hmm. Um, and um, I, think, I think he had very limited, um, probably in his seven years in power, I don't think he had like seven interviews with the Afghan media. Oh, wow. So, I'm so would you sure. would you say that he was uh, did he support freedom of the press or did he kind of just stay away from it? Well, I think no, he did not support free free speech. Uh, I mean, he but some people around him, you know, they tried to. In the early years of his presidency, he appointed uh, a very reputable Afghan as a free speech ambassador who stayed for a year and then he moved on. So that was basically the end of uh, cooperation with the government. Um, and then s some others around him, they hated media. Uh, they wanted you know media to praise them in an undeserving um, way. Um, and that was, I believe, um, you know, very unfortunate because such a vibrant media that I explained cannot be fully in the service of, you know, an administration or a government. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that resulted into um, sometimes quite bitter relationship with the government. Uh, I remember that they had called every government organization not to talk to Tolo News, for instance. Mm. Ah. So they banned us um, but for like a few months and then they gave up because that was, they realized that that was not a good idea. Yeah. Um, it didn't provoke us, so it didn't turn us to be, um, you know, to, to become an opposition to the government. You know, we were a professional media outlet. We were talking to the Taliban. We were talking to the government as, as much as, you know, we could. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, we were talking to the people. So mm -hmm. uh, in the seminar yesterday, in the event yesterday, I said that uh, we, um, at Tolo News, we had something like around 3,000 people are speaking on our platform every month. Uh -huh. um, and probably, you know, a very small percentage were government people. So a lot of ordinary Afghans, political politicians, uh, you know, people from different walks of life, business community, sports, um, foreign policy experts. Mm -hmm. So coming back to Ghani, um, I wouldn't characterize him as somebody who supported media. Okay. Um, but he was not a force to really stop 
the press. I think I think he hurt himself, and he hurt the government and the society by not engaging, not just with media, but with so many other realities in the society, mm-hmm. like politicians, like you know, uh, so you know other groups in the society, civil society. Um, I think uh, women's. So he was this isolated man. Okay, so was it surprising for you then when he fled Afghanistan, when the Taliban t- took over? Well, on the day, that was a surprise because he was mm-hmm. saying repeatedly that he will not run away. Right, yeah. But one, but when you look at, you know, his records and, and who he was and, you know, what he has done... Then some people who watched him closely over the years, you know, might come to the conclusion that, you know, he was he was a coward person at the end of the day. So he yeah. couldn't really um, he couldn't really stand, you know, his grounds. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then thinking about the media today, um, how what is life like for your colleagues now under the Taliban government? What kind of access do they give or restrictions? We and operate. Such? Okay. We have a big uh, presence in Afghanistan. Um, uh, the company that uh, owns Tolo News, Mobi Group, mm-hmm. has around like 500 plus people in Afghanistan right now. So okay. it's a large footprint. We produce content. We dub content. We um, you know do news stories, do talk shows. Um, I, if you ask me if it's the same as it was two months ago, I mean, I have to be honest with you that no, it's mm-hmm. not. Um, but is it is it uh, better than nothing? So, you know, I would argue probably un- until we find alternatives um, uh, on how to regain our full freedom. I think um, I think uh, I, I, I admire my colleagues for for what they do. And uh, so, uh, with, with a lot of courage and determination, mm-hmm. I think that's um, that's very good. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess, what do you think that the? Do you feel that the mission of journalists in Afghanistan has changed since the Taliban has taken over? Um, and I guess, to put it more concretely, how do you see the role of the media in Afghanistan today, as compared to maybe when the U.S. was occupying it? Well, in 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 the twenty years uh, where there was international presence in the country, but in the recent years it was very minimal. So you had twenty five hundred U.S. troops mm. in Afghanistan, and they were you know in, in their base. So it was not that um, in the recent years that U.S. presence was so visible on Afghan roads or you know villages. Um, I think in the, in the past few years it was very very limited. But the media, I think, was, as I said, was relatively free. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, unfortunately, we don't uh, broadcast, uh, you know, music. Um, uh, right now, um, we don't do a lot of, uh, you know, satire and, and comedy shows. We can't mock the Taliban. We can't criticize them too much I would say there are a lot of people in within the Taliban government that you know we can't even like talk about them mm. and even I have to be careful being in Chicago you know what I say for my colleagues security 
Yeah. Um, so, so in general, I think um, right now, if if you ask me, I'm happy. I'm happy that you know my colleagues are there and they're safe at least for now, and they and they work. Um, but I'm happy with uh, the amount of access and freedom we have. No, I'm not. Do I see um, a hopeful future? You know, it would. I would say it's to put it very cautiously. It's very vague. Mm-hmm. It's very blurry. Yeah. Okay. And so it does seem as though I feel like the Taliban has understood the importance of media, especially in their takeover. They used Facebook and Twitter pretty effectively throughout their campaign. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the role technology played in their takeover of the state. I think quite significantly, the Taliban used social media, you know, throughout the insurgency in the past uh, 20 years. I think they uh, that was probably the only medium they had to communicate with people and the media. Uh, also, WhatsApp, Signal, mm-hmm. other platforms that they were communicating. <clears throat> and when they had their office, uh, political office in Qatar, um, since uh, 2000, well, the office was established way back, something of, I think around 2012 and 2013, but it was fully functional in 2018 when the U.S. resumed talking to them. Then they had proper access to mainstream media and and journalists were going and visiting them. So they were like this, you know, uh, very uh, um, high demand material for the the press. So the Taliban used social media for their day-to-day messages um, such as a military takeover, such as um, uh, taking a particular part of the country, um, arresting people for intimidation, for, um, uh, I think, uh, announcements of, um, you know, their policies. Um, uh, and uh, some of the, some of their, uh, I think, accounts and pages on social media are very, very active, I, I must say. We, we often argued and challenged the previous government that the Taliban's communication uh, doctrine, the Taliban's communication strategy was much more effective than the government. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. Right. Uh, and the government was spending millions. And, you know, uh, I think even, you know, at some point somebody told me that even their Ministry of Finance had more people in their communications unit an entire Tolo news. Oh wow! Uh, the Ministry of Defense had hundreds of people, right? Yeah. The palace had, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, people in their comms section. But what were they doing? Mm. Promoting individuals, right? Promoting not the cause, but but serving in corrupt governments and societies sometimes. It becomes very self-centered. Mm-hmm. Uh, a minister comes in, you know, he wants all the assets of communications of that department or ministry to be focused on him, yeah, not on the ministry. Yeah, you know, they want him to be praised and and to be highlighted as, mm-hmm. as much as you know. One, uh, probably, I mean, that's fair for any politician, but not at the cost of uh, killing the institution. Right. Right. And even on the communications piece, I think you noted at one point that they, the Taliban wanted Dolo News to 
refer to them as the Islamic Emirate instead of the Taliban. And they also had like a press secretary that was on American cable news. Um, so like, what do you make of their efforts to appear as a normal government? Do you think it's believable? Is it working? And more specifically, who, for whom are they putting on this show? I mean, they are pretty sophisticated people, I, I must say. At least some of them. And and some others are pretty dangerous. Um, so those who live, lived in Doha for years in, have engaged with the international community and, and others. Um, so they are pretty... Um, I must say, pretty smart. So they they yeah. know that as a government, they should have ties with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. They paid a huge price for isolation twenty years back. They were toppled, yeah. right? They would. They don't want to repeat that mistake. From uh, you know, as far as I can see. But um, h- how much are they doing to prevent that? To prevent going into another isolation, um, that is, I think, the question. Um, so, um, you know, f- I think I think they really care about, you know, being recognized by the international community, being able to be, you know, out of the blacklist, UN blacklist, US blacklist, to be able to travel freely. Assets are frozen right now. I think nine billion dollars of Afghanistan's federal reserves are mm-hmm. frozen so they want that to unfreeze but then there is a high list of expectations from the international community that the Taliban need to meet yeah um, I don't see much progress on that mm-hmm. but they have this de facto diplomatic capital which is Doha right now yeah so there the Taliban's foreign minister is shuttling between Kabul and Doha to meet with the international community from, you know, I think I think uh, the, the foreign minister is right now in Doha. I spoke with a Western ambassador this morning who was in Doha and, you know, meeting with the Taliban foreign minister. I think the Chinese foreign minister met with the Taliban foreign minister yesterday. So they try to engage. Um, I'm not sure if they have the capacity and the will to deliver because then at the top of the Taliban mm. leadership, then you have a different mentality. Okay. Right? Yeah. They are not the ones who lived in luxurious villas in Doha or traveled the world. Mm-hmm. You know, for them, I think they care about some of the very Taliban specific ideologies and values that they, they care. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget that some of these Taliban leaders their sons have committed suicide. So they have a strong ideologies. Uh, they believe in, 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 in jihad and yeah. and, 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 and king out the Americans. And uh, so, so they would not compromise that for, let's say, U.S. recognition Yeah, from what I see. And then because you stick to your political ideology or religious ideology, then you make the people of Afghanistan suffer, mm. who are very diverse, I must say, <laughs> who do not think like the Taliban. Um, any survey that I have seen um, has shown that 
more than 70-80% of Afghans want democracy. Mm. They want elections. They want a republic system. They want the will of the people to decide uh, which direction the country is taking. So this very dominant majority has no voice right now. Right. And so to clarify, would you say that there is a divide within the, within the Taliban of, with, between the more ideological side and maybe the more practical side? I think the Taliban, so they started a peace process with the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. And then that resulted into an agreement in 2020. And then they took, they took over the country militarily. So the military yeah. wing of the Taliban, which is the strongest, so they argue that, you know, this was not a diplomatic victory. We took over the country, the government fell. Mm. So they do not give a lot of value to the peace talks. The diplomats or the diplomatic um, efforts of the Taliban um, and those who were behind it, they might argue differently. They, they might say, you know, if we were not talking to an American, if we didn't have that deal, so this was not going to happen. So let's engage with the world. So there is this, you know, two arguments within, within the Taliban. But it's a military organization. It's an armed insurgency now turned into, you know, government. Um, so in, in an armed insurgency, the, arm, the army wing, the military wing is the strongest. Yeah. Right? So that's pretty obvious. Right. They have to figure out uh, their differences and come up with clear policies. Mm -hmm. So would you say that it's okay to assume that the Taliban is insincere in its promises to have this egalitarian society um, or relatively compared to the Afghan state of 20 years ago, or should we be giving them kind of a benefit of the doubt considering there is this more um, practical diplomatic side of the Taliban? I think the Taliban do not represent the Afghan society. Mm. The Afghan society is way diverse. And uh, the Afghan society wants a, you know, people to have the final say. The Taliban's ideology contradicts some of these, um, you know, values that the Afghan people cherish. For instance, they're saying that <coughs> people should not go and, and elect their head of state because, <coughs> because in Islam, I mean, they argue that um, all people are not equal in terms of, uh, you know, decision making. So there has to be a selective group of individuals to be formed as a shura. Mm -hmm. um, and then they should sort of have the, uh, the final say on certain things, such as electing the head of state. So that disqualifies you know, millions of people from having uh, a say in the uh, political life of their country. Yeah. So, and they do, they do not even engage with the people on how um, the society should run. Uh, also, ethnically, I think, uh, I mean, as I said, the country is quite diverse. 
ethnically the Taliban are not representative enough. Yeah. Um, if you look at the Taliban's minister, you know, ministers, cabinet right now, they're all mullahs. Mm. From the minister of higher education to minister of water and power to minister of urban and rural development to finance. Forget about like defense or interior or intelligence and some of the more sort of political ministries. <clears throat> like these very technical ministries are run by, you know, some of these people who may not be technically qualified yeah, to do it. Right. So I don't know how they can lead the country. Right, of course. And, you know, I think a lot of people are worried about the risk generally that the Taliban poses to Afghans um, in one that many see that is not necessarily violence based per se, but is that Afghanistan is currently facing an economic crisis and a potential food shortage. Um, so based on your reporting, how do you think that a food crisis will affect the potential for civil unrest? And then even further than that, how do NGOs worldwide um, how can they provide humanitarian aid without necessarily, quote-unquote, supporting a terrorist group or legitimizing the Taliban as a government? I think the humanitarian crisis is imminent, um, uh, especially with the winter being just across the corner. Um, and um, this is a challenge for the international community, as you said, how to um, help the Afghan people without helping the Taliban. Yeah. Um, one would, you know, one way would be to help through NGOs, through um, probably, you know, some of the Taliban-friendly countries like, like Qatar, like Pakistan, um, to make sure that they have some checks and balances in place. But, um, you know, you can't help people of a country without their government's input. Yeah. It's difficult. Um, so, so I think that's uh, probably a, you know, a million dollar question at, at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and people are, you know, going through a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, thinking more about the media and civic engagement, particularly as Americans um, and listeners of this podcast are probably American, how, do you think that it was beneficial for the world to watch the fall of Afghanistan in real time? You know, there are obviously videos of people. The dreaded plane video is one that stuck with a lot of people. Um, but did you see it actually motivating Western citizens to help Afghan citizens at all? Um, or do you feel like it was more, I guess, of a fad in the Westerner sense that, you know, now, actually the other day I was looking up the Google trend searches of Afghanistan. It was like a flat line. And then obviously August 2021, it went straight up. And now just like less than a month later, it's gone down. Um, and people aren't really talking about it anymore. So I guess what do you make of that? I think the American public uh, should be very proud of um, what Afghanistan and the U.S. have achieved in the past 20 years. Mm 
uh, we should be, as people of two countries, should be sad the way it ended. But it should not end the partnership between, uh, you know, the people of Afghanistan and the people of the United States. Afghanistan has this history of, you know, political upheavals and ups and downs. Um, you know, in my lifetime, I have seen, I don't know, you know, a bit of the communist government and then later um, civil war and then an Islamic government and then democracy and then no government and then, a, you know, Taliban government one and then Taliban government two. So who knows where the country is going to be in five years' time, in three years' time? Are we going to be um, um, in a civil war? Are we going to be, you know, um, Taliban will, will, will not be able to survive? So that should not be the end of, given the uncertainty and what people are going through, that should not put an end to the partnership between and the relationship between the two countries. Over a million Americans have served in Afghanistan. Mm. They have families here. They have friends. I spoke at the event yesterday uh, at the university and uh, somebody came to me afterwards from the audience who had served in the U.S. military in oh, Afghanistan. Wow. Um, and I think two tours in Bagram and in Jalalabad. So for him, it was very emotional, probably as emotional as it is for me. Yeah. Right? So, and when you go to DC and you, or you go to Pentagon or to the State Department, you see hundreds of people who work in Afghanistan and they are, you know, mm -hmm. you know now like, like Chairman Mike Milley, for instance, you know, served in Afghanistan and so many other, you know, leaders. Um, on the defense and um, uh, um, diplomatic side have served in Afghanistan. So for them, I think for years to come, there is going to be this Afghanistan connection. Yeah. Um, and um, this should not be the end of... It's a pause at the moment. It should not be the end of the partnership. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the U.S., that the story of the U.S. and Afghanistan was a success story or was it a failure? I think we've achieved so much. Um, and then at the moment, I must say, you know, as I said in the beginning, you know, we have, uh, we have failed. Um, but we have the potential to revive some of those successes, such as the media, for instance. You know, we have about like 10,000 media professionals and journalists inside the country and some who are outside, uh, what can we do with them? You know, if we can create opportunities that they can be involved in their country uh, uh, from within and overseas, then we keep the media alive. Mm -hmm. if, if there is no attention to them, then that's unfortunately the end of uh, free press in the country. Mm. Um, and every sector like this, you know, should be looked into. Um, um, so, I hope uh, it's, it's, it's a dark hour. Um, it's a sad moment, but it's not the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And final, final question. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was wondering if you could elaborate more. Is how do you see 
the future of free press shaping out in Afghanistan? And are you hopeful? I think Afghanistan will find its way. Um, maybe um, we're gonna have a, you know a rough couple of years ahead of us. Mm-hmm. But the investment we have made in the people of the country, I don't think it's gonna go away. Free media being one 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 part of it. There is so much information coming out of Afghanistan right now. Not just from Kabul. I mean, you see only the airports because that's yeah. what the American media is reporting. Mm-hmm. But we see, you know, information coming from around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, that means something is alive. People's consciousness is alive. You know, people's uh, will is strong, and they would like to contribute and tell their stories uh, to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that well, that's a good note to end on, I think. So let's uh, thank you so much for being here and talking with me and taking the time. Thank you, Nadia. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you learned something about foreign policy and media in Afghanistan. If there's anything to take away from this episode, it's that civic engagement requires effective journalism. The two go hand in hand. At the same time, however, it's important to note that what is happening there is not just another news story. The unfolding of events in the last two months has affected real people who are just trying to pursue their lives freely. People just like me and you. So to learn about how to help, visit sites like the International Rescue Committee, UNICEF, or other refugee organizations. You can donate and volunteer anywhere around the country. And as always, contact your local representative to urge them to advocate for Afghans and especially resettlement programs in the United States. As Latfula said, there's hope for the country, and that hope can come from all of you. For you shy in the loop, I'm Nadia Osman. See you in December.